0: Kelly with the Endeavoring Orthodoxy podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about application of revelation in life and in the church. Uh, particularly what I want to be discussing today is uh, different models of revelation, uh, particularly non-propositional revelation. So we're continuing this series in the Word of God and the mon- Mind of Man, by Ronald Nash. However, we're going to deviate just a bit from the book this week and next week uh, because the next chapter in Nash talks about a a defense of propositional revelation. But what I thought I would do is give you just a little more practical and applicable background to exactly what is non-propositional revelation. You've heard me talk about it, how it's it's non-cognitive and it's it's non-propositional but i haven't really gone through and talked about the exact models of it. So i had some feedback this week from some trusted individuals about how i approach topics on this podcast and that um i'm really passionate about um, certain topics and how and the feedback i got was that I need to do a better job at explaining to you all why I think some topics and issues are so harmful to Orthodox Christianity. One of my strengths as a theologian is being able to see the logical progression and the inevitable ends of certain theological beliefs, and I've had several people affirm this gift but I don't always explain every step of the theological problem that worries me. For for an example, if you were to come to me and tell me, Ben, we need to develop a theology for the church that is based in application or practice uh, more than just right doctrine or right belief. People need to people most need to know how to practice their faith. If you came to me and if you say something like this to me, I'm going to have immediate red flags that come up because the biblical order of that theology is incorrect. Uh, The biblical order is always to have right doctrine come before right practice, but also beyond the, the biblical problems, I know that Many theological movements in the history of the church that have done this very thing where they've gotten this idea that they need to have practice over right doctrine. They've gotten away from the proclamation of the gospel because really they spurned doctrine, um, the dot, you know, doctrine and right belief for a, a doctrine of right practice. And in the logical conclusion, something like this is that we will not have right beliefs to inform our practices, then we will just end up having wrong practices. So if you don't have the right beliefs, you are always going to end up with the wrong practices. And that's, that is biblical. That is not something that, you know, we should be arguing about. Paul over and over again, shows us this type of, pattern in his letters. Jesus even shows us this type of pattern in the Gospels. He spends uh, three years teaching his disciples, and then at the end of his ministry, he tells his disciples to go. And what do they do? They have to go. And so this is this is not something new. Um, this is not something that we really, it's not up for debate. Quite frankly, is within Orthodox Christianity. Now, of course, there are other movements in the history of theology that have said otherwise, um, you know, and they're wrong. That's fine. But what I'm getting at is sometimes I see these things and and I I understand the the logical or theological progression of what people are talking about. And I don't always explain where I'm going with that. So you know, this this idea of practice over doctrine, this has happened over and over again in relation to Christian missions. The church has, uh, you know, ultimately it's gone away from the gospel proclamation where it has put practice before right doctrine because we constantly are looking for missions as practice of good works. So knowing all this, I, that I need to do better at giving you the application to this modern theology. I want to detail for you today, the different models of revelation that have appeared in modern theology and discuss how they really have worked to replace propositional revelation. And spoiler, if you begin to adapt or adopt these views, these other models of revelation, At the expense of propositional revelation, then you will inevitably walk away from any form of orthodox faith. So just spoiler alert, that's there. I I think you have already probably understood that. But if you if you devoid your theology of propositional truth or revelation, you know, the truth content God has revealed to us in favor of these upcoming non-propositional models, then your theology will undoubtedly resembles something that is not Christian, and this has application today because these models, although we're going to be looking at the theoretical foundations of them, and those who originated the models, you know, at, at a theological level, they've stuck around, and their influences have had a lasting effect on modern theology, and so, you know, what'll what end up happening is undoubtedly you'll have something that doesn't resemble uh true christianity and and the reason is you know why do i say that well if if the revelation of god reveals um no truth at all then we can really believe whatever we want and call it whatever we want all i have to say at the end of the day god told me so god told me this god told me that you know there's a I remember watching a trailer for a movie one time, and they were kind of making fun of charismatic pastors, you know, kind of the, the uh, prosperity gospel type pastor. Not, not all charismatic pastors are bad. I don't want to get the, the, um, get the impression that. Um, I surely don't believe that. Um, it was more of a prosperity type preacher and um you know he was he was making jokes from the pulpit about how god told him to divorce his wife and marry some younger woman that was incredibly beautiful by today's standards and um, uh, very kind of had a very lusty look around about her and so if we if we don't adhere to this idea that revelation reveals true propositions about God that there is true content to be gained about God then really we can walk away and believe whatever truth we want and that's what's going to happen that, that that's what does happen and that's what has happened for hundreds of years now and so these models that we're going to explore today really give us the groundwork the theological groundwork for what we see in you know, the church today where people just believe wherever they want. So we are going to break from the word of God in the mind of man for a week or two. Uh, it is going to be two weeks uh, now that I've actually written this out and, um, it's, it's going to be two weeks because I need to make this um, episode a little shorter. I'm working on some major projects for school and I just don't have as much time to put into this this week, but we're going to look into these non-cognitive non-propositional theories of Revelation um, and how they actually work. And my hope is that you will be able to see some of the reasons why so much Protestant theology got off track in the 20th century and how we see some of these problems still exist today. They they haven't gone away. As, As an example, let me give you an example of how we see this practically in the church today. I had out My copy of John Bailey's book, The Idea of Revelation, which is a book that Ronald Nash has referred to in our book, The Word of God and the Mind of Man. I have an older copy of John Bailey's book from 1956. I I believe it might be a first edition. I'm not sure about that. I I try with some of these older books. I try to get hardcover editions um, so that, that they'll last longer. Uh, And up, frankly, some of these books are out of print, and so it's hard to get anything that's not used in hardback. But the book I have, it came from the Cathedral Church Library of Saint John the Divine in New York, New York, and so that's just a little card inside, kind of like a library stamp inside of it. But also inside the book, it stated that the book was a gift of the Reverend John. Hays. I think that's, I pronounced that right. H-E-U-S-S. If, if I pronounce it wrong, I'm sure somebody will tell me about that. But I looked up um, the Reverend John Hayes, and he was a church official in the Episcopal Church of America around the time that John Bailey's book came out. In fact, Hayes was somewhat of an important character in the Episcopal Church, I won't say that he was, you know, an earth shaker or a mover or anything like this, but he was important enough that if you go to the Episcopal Church USA website, there is a dedicated historical page on their website to this man. Okay, so we're we're not talking about someone who's, you know, as famous as, you know, John Bailey himself, but we're not talking about just some nobody this this guy had some clout in the Episcopal Church of America during the 1950s 1960s and in reading this book by John Bailey and John Bailey's one of the uh, one of the scholars that Nash talks about that totally believes that revelation is non propositional non cognitive in reading Bailey's book it was clear that Hayes had an appreciation for Bailey's theology and how God's revelation was non-propositional, because I could see the notes in the margins. I could see what was underlined, where the he, you know, put his little exclamation points and everything. So I could see there was there was excitement in what was being said theologically about revelation from this somewhat high-ranking. Um, s- Somewhat known person in the Episcopal Church. So put that into perspective. A somewhat notable figure in the Episcopal Church 70 plus years ago had what seems to be a great appreciation for the theology of a man who denigrated the status of the scriptures. This was 70 years ago, and the mainline denominations really started to die out and turned away from biblical orthodoxy at this time. And so this just goes to show that the stuff I'm talking about on here is not just a lot of theological high thinking stuff. This this change in theology that happened during the modern era, during the middle of the 20th century, had a major effect on how many church leaders and lay people approach Christianity they ended up not believing in the older forms of the faith and really working to change their mainline denominations because they believed in this non-propositional revelation so w- one more note before i actually get in i know I'm, I'm i have a long introduction here one more note before i actually get into uh, some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about. Uh, the book I am referencing for the information that I'm going to be giving to you is called uh, Revelation as Testimony. It's by a theologian. His name is Mats Wahlberg, M-A-T-S-W-A-H-L-B-E-R-G. He is a Roman Catholic theologian. I believe he's a Swedish theologian, and I don't agree with everything he says in the book, but he is much in line with Nash as far as arguing for revel- revelation as propositional, he says that he's making the
1: he's going to make
0: the account that revelation has to be propositional. I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm about halfway through it, and I really like what I see. Now, in his book, he lays out five theories of revelation. Uh, the first one is revelation as doctrine. The second is revelation as history. The third is revelation as inner experience. The fourth is revelation as dialectical presence. And the fifth, revelation as new awareness. Revelation as doctrine means propositional revelation, while the other four are non-propositional. So the first one I mentioned, propositional revelation, the last four, non-propositional. It is important to mention that while I am critical of these other non-propositional models, that is, it's not to say that there are not bits of truth in each one of them. For example, when the revelation as as history model states that God reveals himself in history, this this, this idea is believed to be absolutely true in the realm of orthodox theology. Orthodox theologians have always believed that. God reveals himself through historical acts. However, the problem arises when these models and the the theologians who were promoting these models exclude completely propositional revelation. The the same problem would exist if certain theologians stated that revelation is only propositional, which I I think there is actually a, a small group out of Australia who does that. Um, I'm just now, I've just now become aware of them and I'm starting to look into their work, although I've got a lot of, on my plate right now, don't have time to read extra stuff. But the problem is not that these non-propositional models are completely incorrect in and of themselves. They have some semblance of truth. Where they falter is they completely exclude propositional revelation, which usually means they exclude the Bible as God's revelation. I mean, when we really break it down, that's what they do. So uh, one final note, the models that Wahlberg uses are all actually derived from an older book by another Roman Catholic theologian named Avery Dulles, Models of Revelation. Uh, It's an older book. It's more thorough. It's great. I've actually, I've got that as well, but um, I just found Wahlberg's explanations sufficient for what we are doing here. And so we're going to start with revelation as history first, and then um, we will go into, we're not going to start at, uh, with revelation as doctrine because uh, we will probably do that last, but we're going to do revelation as history first. So revelation as history is, it's primarily understood as revelation that occurs primarily through historic deeds. So what this means is that some historical events in this model are actually divine acts that reveal God. And so what you have here is that any kind of act that could happen in history, the the theologians that hold up this model believe that God has divinely acted to reveal himself through those historical acts. Now this begs the question right away, how do we tell which events are divine and which are not because remember the theologians who put forth this model they often deny that scripture is actually the word of god and so how do we actually know which divine acts or which events in history are indeed divine and which are not so theologians in this model have typically given two answers to that. Some, like William Temple, uh, remember William Temple? I believe we talked about him last week, the Anglican Archbishop that said there is no truth in re- revealed in Scripture. Remember that guy? William Temple claims that God makes a special divine help that is necessary for humans to know which events are divine revelation. So, it's like, it's almost like God gives a special grace to people so that they can tell which historical deeds are indeed divine revelation. Now this, again, this, I mean, Temple's theory, you know, dies the death of a thousand qualifications because you could automatically ask, well, why isn't scripture a special grace to help us reveal these divine historical acts? I don't know, I don't know Temple that well. This is just what he says. The problem in denying propositional revelation with this historical answer where we have to have some kind of special divine grace that is necessary to know which events are God's revelation. The problem with doing this is that it requires propositional revelation to know which historical events or which historical acts are revelatory so temple can say all he wants that there is no propositional revelation but there has to be some kind of proposition that tells you which historical act is divine or not you can't just go you can't just go about and say no this this special divine help that is necessary to tell which historical deed is divine or not there there's no truth proposition in that no, there has to be some kind of truth proposition in there or else you just you, you can't you can't do anything is, is it some is it some kind of feeling that they get i mean there's just he doesn't say he just says there needs to be a special divine help and so Based on the research that Wahlberg does, as it says that Temple's theory doesn't hold up because the special divine help, this special grace that God gives that is necessary for humans to know which events are divine, our, our, our divine revelation, that requires propositional revelation. So that's one way that they try to answer it. They try to answer the question, how do we tell which events are divine? A second claim made by uh, another famous theologian, Wolfhard Pannenberg. Um, he was a, another th- famous theologian of the 20th century. He stated that history is reality and that we come to know the fulfillment of Christ as a historical event at the end of history. So this really deny the revelatory, the the revel, you know, any kind of revelation through scripture. And it isolated revelation to history, but we only knew things become. We only know things are the revelation of God once we experience the eschaton or the in the end times when when Christ will make everything new. And so, I'm not gonna lie. Um, I don't quite understand uh, pannenberg's theology. I have not interacted with him much. It's bizarre and somewhat confusing however at the same time i will say that the way that they the way that they get around this idea well how do we tell which events are divine and which are not both temple and panenberg they, they seem kind of cheap that they just they're not really answering the question they're trying to skirt that and they're trying to it's almost like they're trying to force you know a square peg into a round hole they want revelation to be non-propositional and they're trying to make it go through history but it just it doesn't work propositions truth propositions show up inevitably and so the main idea in this model is that god is revealed through historical events i don't disagree with this idea you know part of the historical and orthodox understanding of god's general revelation is that he reveals himself through historic events but not at the exclusion of truth propositions and so that's where that's where we get that's where we fall off here is that I don't disagree that revel, uh, history is revelation or revelatory in nature it's that it can't be at the exclusion of some kind of truth proposition so moving on Another, let's see, another model is called, and we're only going to go through two in this episode. Again, I had to keep it short this week just for time's sake. But another model that we're going to look at is revelation as inner experience. And we will call this the a non-conceptual experience. That's it's going to be important because there is a another um model of revelation as inner experience that is conceptual so revelation as inner experience non-conceptual experience and this is this is the theory that God makes himself known to us by merely showing himself or making his presence experienced as some kind of inner experience and this is the inner experience we discussed with Schleiermacher so I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we have, Discussed Schleiermacher before, but as you know, Schleiermacher was attempting to really circumvent the problems of knowledge that Kant proposed in his philosophy about how humans could not know the real world and therefore could not know God. And you remember that from prior weeks. Kant says that we cannot know. I think that's the noumenal world. I I don't know Kant without my notes real well. So, but we can't know the real world. Uh, We can only conceptualize it within the mind. So what Schleiermacher does is he tries to go around this problem of knowledge and he tries to create a non-conceptual experience of God's revelation. So Schleiermacher proposed a revelation of God that did not require knowledge, but was an encounter of total dependence and experience. And I've told you before, When you read Schleiermacher, you're going to come across, or even when you read about him, you're going to come across this idea of total dependency. The experiences proposed by Schleiermacher was devoid of concepts. It is a religious experience that mediates a sort of awareness of God that creates a feeling of absolute or total dependence And it's not like our traditional forms of knowledge. So to help you understand that, you know, we have these different senses that Schleiermacher um, really tries to um, talk about when he talks about experience. And let me see if I can pull up. I'm going off script a little bit here. Let me see if I can actually pull up where he talks about this. but he taught. But Schleiermacher talks about how there is a um, a religious experience rather than any kind of empirical experience, any kind of rational experience, um, anything like that. It's something that's totally different, and it's religious in nature, and so um, it's not conceptual. Um, by any means, the only concept that we have of God is actually our our feeling of total dependence. So, uh, Schle- if you were to if you were to propose um, a proposition of Orthodox theology, like God is omnipresent, Schleiermacher would say that's a false conception of God because it comes through our knowledge. We cannot actually know those types of things about God, we can't actually know the real world and you can see how much, how much respect he had for Kant in doing this. We cannot know the real world. So our, our, the the way that God reveals himself is devoid of knowledge. It is more of a non-conceptual experience. And so one of the major problems for this model is that it's difficult to claim that experiences independent of concepts can be about things like God now what does that mean so can you conceive of any experience of God without having a concept of God that's the question to ask am I able to have this this um, experience of total absolute dependence without having a concept of God in my mind it seems to be, very difficult to do something like that i would say it's i would say it's impossible i i think i think schleiermacher's full of it he doesn't know what he's talking about um i think he was riding the wave of you know theol of very new philosophy at the time and he was adapting it to theology and it was something new you know you, if you remember in Acts 17 where Paul goes to Athens, and they're always trying to learn something new. Uh, they're trying to talk about something new. I think people at this time, when they read Schleiermacher, they were trying to learn something new. They were trying to they were always investigating these things. I think he caught on because that that was just something that people were doing at the time. They were enamored by these uh, philosophies, uh, especially from Hume and Kant, that just were uh, weren't what. Their Christian societies had believed for centuries. So that's one major problem where you really have to ask, how can you conceive of any experience of God without a concept of God in the mind? It just doesn't seem possible. Another problem with Schleiermacher's claim is that if if religious experience does not provide any knowledge of God, then what distinguishes that experience from something like a fantasy? How are we to differentiate those if you if you strip down all of the propositional information that we believe to be truths about god what's to distinguish this experience of total dependence from a fantasy or a, some euphoric experience or you know anything like that there's really nothing there's nothing there to differentiate this. And I was, I was explaining to someone in the past week how this model of revelation really allows a person to conceive of God however he wants. All I have to say is, I feel God is like, and then dot, 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 and that's all the justification I need. I don't need any kind of proposition behind it. And I know, I know you all hear this. In the church today, I know there are people in your small groups, in your Sunday school classes, uh, maybe even pastors and leaders of the church who stand up and say, I feel God is like this with no propositional content behind it, no truth claim behind it. It's just a simple feeling born out of experience. This is dangerous. This is why we have to talk about these things. I don't think people are so much, I can see where, I can see where the revelation as history comes into play, and where people could see certain events, especially if they're like political events, where they want to see God's stamp of approval on them, how that can be dangerous in there. I don't, I really think people struggle more in the church today with this revelation as Inner experience, non conceptual experience. I think Schleiermacher is the person to blame for so much of the psychologizing of the faith today. It's, I mean, think about it. It's all inner experience. Much of it is non conceptual, doesn't have any kind of truth proposition behind it. It's really born out of what a person feels. And so these are the things that we have to be thinking about. We have to be um, looking into them. We have to be careful. I'm telling you, theology, I mean, when you begin to look at heresy, and you can see how it pops up and how it's how it's growing in the church, it's, it's much easier to stamp it out. So those are the two that I wanted to go over today. I will say on a note for Revelation as inner experience, uh, there's another major theologian uh, that, is noted in the 20th century for this kind of inner experience, non-conceptual experience by the name of Carl Ranner. He is a he was a Roman Catholic theologian, a very prominent theologian. And I'm just going to tell you right now, he's over my head. I don't understand Ranner. I haven't studied him very much. I've I've come across his name and read a few things about him. I don't want to talk about what he says, mainly because I I don't want to be irresponsible and teach you something that's not quite true. I feel like I've got a good handle on these other guys, and I can talk about what they're dealing with, but for Rainer, and I think I'm saying that right, R-A-H-N-E-R, uh, I believe I'm saying that right, it was the same kind of thing. There's just this non-conceptual experience in how God reveals himself to us. Um, he tried to take older theology from Thomas Aquinas and apply it to this, and it gets a little funky. And I I need to spend more time looking into it. So, if you do pick up that book by Wahlberg, he's going to talk about Rainer a bit, and, and I'm just not. So, those are that's what we're doing today. Uh, Revelation is history. Revelation is it, inner experience. Uh, next week we will pick it up with the rest of the models and talk about. Um, what they mean for the church today. So until next time, I pray that the Spirit of God illuminates you, that you read some good books, challenge yourself intellectually, and that God would bless you. Have a good day.